This is Car Expert. I'd much prefer that than this being a Korean knockoff of an old British luxury car. It goes about it in its own way, and I think that's really to be respected. I'm really keen to see what, what Aston Martin does in the electric vehicle space, and anything that helps keep Lucid afloat would be great, because it, along with Rivian, are probably the two startups that I'm most excited about. Welcoming to this week's podcast, Scott Colley. Hello, Mandy. And William Stopford, hello. Hello, Mandy. Hey, Scully, you just got back from Korea, which we'll obviously talk about why you were there a little bit later on in the podcast. I always love asking these sort of questions. What were the cars there like on the roads? Yeah, Korea is a really interesting one because although we get some pretty cool Korean stuff in Australia, it is a world unto itself when you get there. It has a really aggressive policy where if you're buying an imported car, you're paying a lot more than you would pay for a locally manufactured one. And that means Hyundai and Kia are massive. Brands like Renault actually build cars in Korea through a partnership with Samsung. And then obviously there's the likes of Sangyong and that sort of thing kicking around as well. But Hyundai and Kia have a whole world of cars we don't see in Australia, and most of them are big, luxurious sedans. They're the sort of thing that Will would like. Um, On the way back from the airport alone, everything from the Kia K9 through to the uh, Hyundai Grandeur and about three generations worth have all rolled out very quickly. The one that I really like, though, is the Genesis G90, which has the sort of body profile of a Bentley Flying Spur, but really interesting, aggressive lights up front, and then this beautiful sort of intricate design at the back, they're the sort of sedans that I think would sell in small numbers in Australia, definitely, but would make people consider buying a sedan at the top end because sat side by side with an S-Class, which is something we actually got to see in Seoul, I know which one I prefer the look of and it's definitely not the Mercedes. It's it's interesting that you talk about Korea being so full of sedans because the grandeur has actually been in some years the best-selling car there. And if I look at the best-selling cars in Korea in 2022, the grandeur is in the top 10. So is the Hyundai Avante, which is what we call the i30 sedan. So is the Genesis G80. So is the Kia K8. So it is just it. SUVs are becoming more popular there. Um, I think the Kia Sorento was the second best-selling vehicle there last year from memory, Um, but it is still very much a a place that still loves sedans. I think the other interesting thing is how fast the designs of those sedans are moving. Um, We're used to a normal model cycle being four years and an update than four years, but In the time we were there, I saw about four generations of grandeur, and I don't know when they were all revealed. I'd be lying if I said I was very plugged into the model cycle, but all of them looked really modern and up to date. It's as if Hyundai is constantly updating and tweaking those designs, and same with the Kia K8, K9, Will, sorry, which is their flagship? K9 is the rear-wheel drive one, K8 is the front-wheel drive one. Right. K9 is the dog, and then K8 is the other one. Um, (laughs) But it, it up it looks really crisp and modern and as if they're constantly fettling with the design to keep it fresh and relevant in a way that I can't think of many other brands really doing with their cars. So I know it's it's obviously a world away from Australia, but kind of does show you can still do cool things with sedans. So we know that the Korean brands just absolutely dominate the Korean market and they're, they're very much favoured there. But um, my understanding is, is Hyundai and Kia enjoy a much higher market share than any other player there. Did you see a lot of uh, Renault Samsungs or Chevrolets or any of the other kind of players there on the roads? Uh, short answer is no, not really. Um, 
It's interesting. The majority of cars are definitely Hyundai's and Kia's. Um, I saw a few new Sangyongs or KG Mobilities, and they're actually badged that way, the new Torres, which looks quite good. Um, there definitely is a mix of other cars on the roads. There are some Renault Samsungs around, similar to the Mitsubishi Colt in Europe. That that Renault design of the badge has very clearly been mated perfectly with cameras at both ends of those cars. And as soon as you take the big diamond badge away, the cameras look really weird. But there are a few of those around as taxis. Uh, there are a few Chevrolet uh, Orlandos, which are a sort of boxy, wagony, hatchy MPV thing that we didn't really miss out on much by the looks of it. <laughs> um, yeah, there's there's a range of different cars there, but the majority are definitely from the, the big two or whatever you want to call them. Um, and I mean, partly that's down to just their sheer scale, partly that's down to the, the policies in Korea, but it's also partly down to the fact they're making really good cars that clearly suit local needs. What about, um, I'm, I'm keen to hear how Koreans look after their cars. Did you find the majority of them to be bashed around or filthy dirty or they, they're actually quite proud? Um, one of the things you will notice in Korea is that a lot of people, you know, in America, will people keep the yellow splitter guards on their Dodge chargers? Yeah. yeah. So in Korea, people don't do that, but they keep the little blue foam blocks on the doors from pre-delivery. <laughs> Which is far more practical, I realise, than the splitter guards. But the number of cars getting around with little blue foam protectors on the ends of the doors so if you open them into another car, they don't damage them. It's definitely not an accident that we saw so many. It's clearly a thing over there. And I remember it from another time I've been in Korea. Um, There's very few modified cars from what I saw. Uh, My understanding is Korea is very strict on what you do with your car. So... The most we sort of saw was some different badges or some coloured brake calipers and wheels, but it's not like going to a Thailand or a Japan where there's a real culture of taking normal family cars and making them really aggressive modified cars with inky wheels and lower suspension and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, that, that's sort of the best I can give you, Mandy. I didn't see any really battered and bruised cars. So I would imagine Korean people tend to look after their cars quite well. It's not a sort of Parisian situation where your car's not running until every single panel's been dinged. It's funny that you talk about those blue foam guards and the doors because do you remember, I, I never see it anymore, but do you remember those weird little black strips with the reflectors that people always used to put in yes. their cars here? What happened to them? They just disappeared. Those and also the anti-static things that people used to hang at the back of their cars, <laughs> the little black rubber. flaps that would run down from under the bumper and drag along the ground. Oh, gosh. It, I don't know what happened to them either. Maybe people realised they were being ripped off. I don't know. Rear window louvers and mud flaps are other things that have seemed to have really disappeared. Yes. Actually, mud, we're getting miles off track here, but mud flaps, probably a really good idea because so many modern cars have like – straight sort of flat wheel arches, but then curved surfaces after that. And the way the mud kicks up off them makes them get really dirty really quickly. I don't mind the idea. Hmm. Well, I feel like there's another article for you to write. What happened to those features used to be on cars? I can see something yeah. like that being written. I'll add it to my ever-growing list. <laughs> All right, let's take us through this week's biggest car news and uh, we'll start off with you, Will, the 2024 BYD Dolphin. We've got all the details for this one. Yes, I went to SeaWorld to, uh, for, the, for the announcement. Are you, do actually, you, um, are you, you kidding? It? Do you oh. get it, Mandy? Dolphin? Dolphin? SeaWorld? Yes. Dolphin? Do yes. you get it? Do you get it? <laughs> are you joking? I'm or... not joking. Really? <laughs> I'm not joking. It's Look, it, it, we did actually also get a dolphin show as well. So we got invited along to an event that was um, 
That's really a lot cute. of BYD customers and other kind of associated people uh, were there. Uh, so we, we got a free dolphin show and they wheeled out the dolphin and then we uh, got to hear the, um, the CEO of BYD's local distributor, Luke Todd, have a little uh, brief chat about the dolphin. Um, and um, yeah, uh, the BYD dolphin is now Australia's most affordable electric vehicle. By $100. <laughs> no way. I actually thought that uh, we were going to get a name change once that got here, but clearly they're sticking with the dolphin. No, and, and I'm glad they are because um, uh, at 03, I know that there's uh, there's some technical meaning for, for what that is, but uh, I, you've got dolphin, you've got seal. Um, there are other vehicles that are coming in this in this family of BYD vehicles that will have similarly aquatic names. There's a seagull overseas, for example. Uh, so we, know a- that, um, we know some brands are trying to remake their customer experience and Genesis has lounges and Toyota has Toyota centers and I'm assuming BYD is going to set up aquariums. I knew this is I knew this is going to be a setup to a joke. <laughs> oh, oh, you'll be sleeping with the fishes any minute now. Uh, <laughs> it actually makes a change from numbers though. Like I think yeah. you said a couple of weeks ago, get back to calling cars names, not numbers. Look, and honestly, it's, it's a quirky name for a quirky looking car. And before we get into the nitty gritty about range and pricing and all of that, let's talk about colors <laughs> because you can get this car in bright blue. You can get it in pink. You can get it in purple. You can get it with a blue interior. You can get it with a pink oh interior. Like remember all those like, you know, micros and like uh, Suzuki Altos and all of that back in the day and in bright colors. Well, BYD is listened to buyers that that wanted something that color, and you're about to see pink dolphins on the road, and not just in Chinese rivers. Um, so the BYD Dolphin. Uh, so I mentioned it's a hundred dollars cheaper than what was the cheapest. Uh, electric vehicle in Australia for all of about four days. Uh, BYD had announced that they were going to be um, uh, revealing pricing. And I think MG saw that and was like, well, we're going to steal their thunder. Let's announce pricing now. Uh, But they're two kind of very different beasts, despite that almost identical pricing. So the BYD Dolphin um, will be available in three variants. The third is a special sport that they've shown one photo of and they've promised it's going to be an electric hot hatch and it's coming next year and it's all a little bit mysterious. Um, But the BYD Dolphin, um, you've got a base model that's got a 70 kilowatt electric motor with a zero to 100 time of 12.3 seconds. So really not the quickest thing, but I know speed isn't everything. Um, You can also upgrade to a 150 kilowatt Dolphin Premium, which slashes the zero to 100 time to seven seconds. Um, It also increases the range from 340 kilometers to 427 kilometers. I think what's really impressive about the Dolphin though, those performance figures for the base grade are, are not really amazing, but the standard equipment list is pretty unreal um every single dolphin comes with a full suite of active safety and driver assist uh, features including front and rear cross traffic assist and blind spot monitoring a surround view camera uh there's a whole lot going on every single model has got a panoramic glass roof led headlights a big 12.8 12.8 inch screen that rotates heated front seats uh so byd has really gone all out um in specking up even the base model to a really high degree now if you contrast that with the mg4 the mg4 in base grade is rear wheel drive not front wheel drive um it has got um 
more range slightly, 350 kilometers, ever so slightly more range. Um, but if you want to get things like blind spot monitoring, a surround view camera, rear cross traffic alert, leather out upholstery, you know, some of those kind of luxury features as well, you actually have to step up to a higher grade. So you've got a choice there. You can get a, uh, at that price point, you can get a BYD that's fully loaded, but maybe a bit slow, or you can get an MG that's not quite as comprehensively equipped, but it's going to be quicker and potentially more engaging to drive, but we need to test these back to back. I'm going to be honest. I'm obviously excited that we have another affordable option in Australia now because that is one of the things the EV market's been lacking. But I'm a little disappointed by this pricing. Um, BYD made a lot of noise about the fact it was going to be the most affordable electric car in Australia, that it was going to set new markers, that it was going to change the game. And I realize part of that is just it's a young brand trying to establish itself and that it's, you know, leader in Oz, which is Luke Todd, who has set up EV Direct, which imports BYD, is a pretty colorful character and, and loves to talk about a brand he's clearly proud of. But undercutting the MG4 by 100 bucks, it seems cheap, but not in a good way. I really thought they were going to go for a $35,000, $36,000 price point that would set it out as the clear leader. And instead, it's it's still cheapest. Yes, that is an objective fact, but it hasn't moved the game on in a way maybe I thought it would. I think the other thing is we're going to get to see a BYD Dolphin Sport at some point. Um, BYD gave us a very loose render of the car. We don't know how fast it'll be, all that sort of thing. But they're going to bring, was it a 1,000 of these, Will, to Australia? Yeah, it's like a special edition. Um, and it's going to look a little bit like a boy racer. It's sort of very Grand Theft Auto almost, the um, the, the render they put on their website. I think it shows that BYD is willing to try some stuff to make an impact in Australia beyond just pricing and beyond just the cars. It's actually doing some stuff specific to us uh, and it's, it's sort of tapping into stuff that the Aussie buyer really loves, which is fast cars and special editions. Um, so I think it's a good sign of what's to come from BYD. If they're willing to commit to doing a limited edition sport for Australia, there may be more Aussie-specific stuff coming down the track, which can only be a good thing. I just pictured them driving a BYD Dolphin into Los Santos Customs. <laughs> it is it is a really wild-looking uh, looking thing. I think what, what, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see happen. If we look at the MG4 as an example, they announced pricing for a higher grade model first, and then they announced more variants later. So BYD has still got some kind of room to move here because I think they would they would definitely have a market for a cheaper version of the Dolphin that has maybe all of that safety kit standard, but loses some of the, the luxury features like the glass roof and the leatherette upholstery and the, like, the power adjustable front seats. Uh, because somebody, you know, if, if you had like a, a base model Dolphin, even with that base powertrain at say 35 grand that had much of that equipment, just losing out some of the luxury niceties, that, that would really hit the spot for a lot of people. Hmm. Okay. Um, we're going to go for something completely the opposite end now here, Scully. I love this idea of a fast BMW M5 Touring. It is coming back. It sure is, Mandy. Three of them will be sold in Australia and they'll all be really cool. Um, <laughs> no, that's a bit cynical of me. I've seen a couple of M3 Tourings around already. Um, but, yeah, BMW <laughs> has traditionally been reticent to take on the Audi RS6, the Mercedes E-Class AMG estate um, with the M5. It did a, a, a version of the E60, um, which was the really sort of flame-surfaced, bangle-designed one. 
But beyond that, we've never really seen an M5 wagon. Um, and I don't know that that E60 wagon actually came to Australia, Will, did it? No, I can't remember. I don't think so. The also, fact we can't. There was another generation before that as well. But there's only ever been two generations of M5 Touring, so... Right. Sorry. Hello and welcome to Car Expert, where I say things that are almost correct about cars. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it'll be the first since 2010 and uh, and it'll slot in above the new M3 Touring, which has obviously been very warmly received by the enthusiast market. Um, we're expecting this to be an absolute powerhouse, but not in a way that we know from BMW M. Unlike the last M5, which has got a V8 and the one before that was a V8 as well. Um, the one before that was a V10 derived from Formula One. I still desperately want one of those. Um, this one's going to be a plug-in hybrid, we think. It's going to have a V8 powertrain from the XM, which packs 550 kilowatts and 1,000 newton meters of torque. The XM also has 88 k's of electric range. We don't know exactly what outputs and range the M5 will have, but expect it to be somewhere in that ballpark. Um we're also expecting a version of the BMW M xDrive system, which has an electronic rear diff lock. It's got uh, active anti-roll built into the 48-volt system. It's got drift mode. It's got all sorts of crazy stuff um, that will feature potentially as BMW works to keep what is going to be a very heavy car in check. Uh, we talked about the uh, EV9. No, we haven't yet, but it will be a 2.7-ton car. Um, this M5 might not be 2.7 tons, but it's going to be a big old bus. So keeping that weight in check when you're driving it like an M5 should be driven is going to be a challenge. But it's one I think uh, one I think I'd like to find out how they've done with because regardless of all the other talk, I don't think there's anything cooler than a fast wagon. Yeah. And the fact that just before internal combustion disappears completely, BMW is giving us a couple of cool ones to finish is a really good thing. It better come here. It, oh. it, it better come here because uh, Audi has this game all to itself here because Mercedes-Benz just, I, I understand, yes, from a business point of view, there's really not that many wagon buyers out there, but come on, like bring the E63 here, BMW, bring the M5 Touring here. Um, there will be a few people that will be very, very, very eager to get their hands on one. Got to please those enthusiasts, absolutely. Uh, Will, uh, the Hilux is going mild hybrid. Yes. Uh, so they announced this um, this week um, and they've been very careful not to use the H word. Uh, Toyota is known for its <laughs> H words. Um, they sell a lot of H words. Um, and um, they've been careful not to call what is effectively a mild hybrid, um, as, as it's usually um, referred to, um, anything other than uh, the Toyota Hilux with 48 volt technology. Catchy. Um, but basically what this is, is takes the Hilux 2.8 litre turbo diesel four-cylinder with the six-speed automatic transmission. It adds a 48-volt battery, a small electric motor generator, and some other components um, that gives it um, automatic stop-start. Uh, it gives it an acclaimed 10% improvement in fuel economy. Uh, Toyota also promises greater drivability, reduced noise, noise vibration harshness, but no... Um, uh, no negative effect to its capability. So it still maintains the same three and a half ton uh, brake towing capacity. Uh, there's not much that's been done in terms of electrification in this segment. Yes, I know LDV has got the ET60, which is a full electric thing. 
but we haven't seen any hybrids here in this part of the market. Um, so Toyota's come in with some degree of electrification, but it's perhaps a little bit disappointing that Toyota, who is renowned for its hybrids, they've they've helped popularize the, the technology. They've got a wide range of hybrids, including in SUVs and utes overseas. They've come in with just this 48 volt technology. Um, they're actually going to be beaten to market with um, by GWM when it comes to a ute that actually has a full hybrid system. I am uh, I'm a little disappointed it's not a full hybrid because I can see the benefit given a lot of these utes spend their time sitting on the school run. But I actually do think that maybe we are and maybe some of our commenters as well, having a look at the comments on that story, are underselling the benefit this could bring. Uh, a 10% reduction in fuel economy is what Toyota is saying, and it's a brand that is not known for making garish or outlandish claims. And if you think of the number of Hiluxes sold in Australia, but also the number of companies that don't run one Hilux, they run 50 or 100 or 200 across their fleets, that is still going to make a meaningful difference. Now, I realize that if the saving was 20 or 30%, that would obviously be even more beneficial to them. But I do think it's worth keeping in mind that maybe one litre per 100k, something like that of diesel, doesn't sound like a heap on paper, but accrued over the life of a Hilux across a fleet of cars in a, in a form factor and an, I assume at a price that's going to keep these fleet buyers happy, it will make a big difference. And if it is well received, I have no doubt it's the beginning of something else for Toyota. I have no doubt there's more hybrid tech coming. I think also people are kind of expecting their Toyota to have introduced a, a dramatically different powertrain in a vehicle that's really towards the end of its life cycle. We don't know when for sure the next generation Hilux is coming, but we know that this is kind of reaching the end here. I could, I'll bet dollars to donuts the next generation Hilux, much like the Tacoma overseas, will offer a hybrid powertrain. Um, but as an interim kind of step in the meantime, that it gets this is at least something. Actually, it's interesting you mentioned the next Hilux, Will. The fact that this is coming next year would suggest the new Hilux isn't going to be here for quite a while. Um, again, we've seen some brands do some weird stuff where they'll bring like three months worth of a pre-facelift car and then bring the updated car, but that's not really how Toyota operates. Um, yeah, the fact there's a new mild hybrid version of the current car coming in 24 would, this is purely speculation out of my head, but it, it would surprise me if we see the new Hilux in Australia before the end of next year or the start of 2025 based on that. And maybe that's wrong, but yeah, it is interesting that we're getting yet another update to quite an old car given how far advanced the Ranger is now. Makes complete sense to me. Um, Scully, Aston Martin want to develop their own EV platform, but they're asking a little bit of help from somewhere else. It sure is, Mandy, and it's a truly international story, this one. Uh, Aston Martin is British, but it's also owned by a Chinese-backed consortium and partly by the Saudi Private Investment Fund, and it's being helped by an American company called Lucid, which makes a very good-looking electric sedan, which is also backed by the Saudi Private Investment Fund to build its electric cars. Um, immediately when I saw this headline, my thought was, oh, that's the Saudi connection because, yeah, both of these cars are funded by the same place at this point or partly funded by the same place. But regardless, it is a really interesting story and it's something we're seeing more and more of. I wouldn't be surprised to see the likes of Rimac teaming up with big established car makers beyond the Volkswagen Group at some point in the future. And if this Lucid Tech works for Aston Martin, there's no doubt there'll be plenty of brands that are interested. Um, 
At the moment, we know that Aston will use Lucid's current and future powertrain and battery technology, that's a quote, for the new platform, and it's going to be part of a long-term relationship is what Aston Martin's saying. It's going to underpin the entire electrified model range from hypercars to sports cars, GTs, and SUVs. So the first of these is going to come in 2025. We don't know yet whether it will be an electric sports car or, or an SUV. Um, but we know that there are a lot of electric cars coming from Aston Martin. The first plug-in hybrid's due next year, the Valhalla hypercars coming for 2026. But beyond that, the core range is going to be fully electrified by 2030. Um, as for the deals around the deal, um, Aston Martin's going to give 28 million shares to Lucid. So it's about a 3.7% stake for Lucid. Um it's also agreed to pay Lucid more than 450 million US dollars, about 670 million Australian dollars, over a number of phases as it does take on board more and more of the drivetrain's batteries and that sort of thing. Uh, interestingly enough, the two companies say that there was a competitive process involved in putting this partnership together. Um, the cynic in me says the Saudi connection here means that no matter how competitive it was, it was always a very likely outcome. I also am a golf fan and there's been all sorts of Saudi stuff going on in golf at the moment. So I'm a little bit skeptical of how the money's working, but <laughs> that's just on my end. I think the cynic might also say, well, Lucid's not exactly pumping out money and Aston Martin is reeling from a disastrous IPO. Uh, so these are two companies that really need each other to stay afloat. But the optimist would say Lucid is a really, really, really impressive EV startup making genuinely impressive cars. They've got an SUV coming out as well, the Gravity. And Aston Martin is, is an iconic brand um, that is you know, looking to, to transition to offering electric vehicles. So this partnership makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm really keen to see what, what Aston Martin does in the electric vehicle space. And anything that helps keep Lucid um, afloat uh, would be great because it, along with Rivian, are probably the, the two startups that I'm most excited about in the electric vehicle space. I think also one of the challenges that a number of car makers have had going hybrid or electric is the tech is really difficult to develop. You look at the McLaren Artura and no matter how talented the McLaren engineers are, they struggled to make the electrical systems play nice with the engine. There were cars that caught fire, all sorts of things. Um, Lucid is already renowned for its leadership in this space. Its motors and batteries and generators are the smallest and most energy efficient or among them on the market. Um, the guy who founded it is ex-Tesla and has then gone to do his own thing. So for Aston Martin, there is huge benefit to be had from taking off-the-shelf tech that works rather than pouring millions or billions of dollars into developing something for yourself that may then take millions or billions of dollars more to refine to the point where it's acceptable to customers. Yeah, sounds pretty smart to me. And lastly, Will, I'm actually pretty excited about this. Uh, I, I love the brand Alpine and they've got some big plans for the future. So Alpine has been in the news uh, recently because Alpine and Lotus were supposed to be working together on an electric sports car and they mutually kind of dissolved their partnership. Um, so, you know, maybe there were kind of doubts that what, about what Alpine would be doing in the electric sports car space. Well, they've addressed them by saying not only are they still going ahead with an electric replacement for the A110 but they're also planning on doing a roadster version of it. And they're also planning on offering a four seat sports car as well. Not only that. So keep in mind Alpine right now just sells one car. It just sells a sports car. It doesn't sell a massive amount of them. Uh, the Renault group wants to turn Alpine into a global brand. Um, they want to enter China. They want to enter the US. They want to have region specific models. They want to have seven 
new models, including those three sports cars, including the previously revealed uh, hotted up version of the upcoming Renault 5 electric hatch. Um, they want to have rivals effectively for the Porsche Macan and Porsche Cayenne. Um, they want to develop a new electric vehicle platform. It's like, whoa, Alpine wow. has just had, you know, they're a, a, a fairly newly resurrected brand is selling one vehicle. And here they are announcing these grand plans. Um, and they're also planning on bringing in 8 billion euros, so around 13 billion Australian dollars in revenue by the end of the decade. Um, so, and they also plan on breaking even on their operating margins by 2026. So there's, there's a lot of really ambitious elements to this plan. It's ambitious, but I think it could just work. Uh, as we know in Australia in particular, people like sexy, sporty cars. Cupra is going growing quickly globally. Mercedes AMG, BMW M, Audi S-Line, all of those sub-brands are popular because people don't want a basic car on small wheels. They want something that looks good and stands out. And the logical sort of step beyond that is to have a sub-brand that uses all of the same tech but has an even sexier brand name than the base Renault brand. So Alpine definitely, in its logic at least, stacks up quite well. And I think the other thing that we're, we're hoping to see from them and the thing that could help is the cars could look really, really cool. Um, the A290 beta concept is one of the coolest concept cars I've seen in ages. It looks like a sort of futuristic racer with retro base styling. It's got a central seat. It's got all sorts of little details on it that maybe it won't be a massive volume seller, but could set the foundation for a brand that really stands out and really makes its mark. Beyond all of that, though, and Mandy, I know you've experienced an A110 as well. I just wanted to bring a few more into Australia because I loved that car and I'd love to own one one day. Mm. I think what's also really interesting about this uh, is the Renault Group doesn't really have a premium or a luxury brand at the moment. I mean, I guess if you count the wider Renault Nissan Mitsubishi Alliance, you've got Infinity, which is probably in the worst spot it's been in since the late 90s. Um, so the Renault Group clearly wants to get into that higher profit margin uh, part of the market. And they, they've looked at Alpine, which obviously is, is a brand that has it's rich in heritage. Um, but I think... This we've kind of seen this as well with with Geely acquiring Lotus and trying to turn what has always been a niche or was kind of boutique sports car manufacturer into a a global premium brand. I'm curious to see if the Alpine name uh, resonates in markets like the US, like China. I'm curious if Lotus does the same as well. Um, it's interesting as well to see that the brand is going to cover a wide range from a hot hatch all the way up to like a Porsche Cayenne rival, electric sports cars. Uh, Alpine's indicated that they're, some of those vehicles might be for specific markets. The SUV is very much going to be aimed at the US, uh, where I doubt they would sell the A290 hot hatch. So I'm excited to see what happens with this brand. I'm, I'm, and I also really appreciate the candor from um, the Renault Group CEO, Luca De Mayo, actually said only two years ago, Alpine was in a dead end. <laughs> so, oh, no. <laughs> you know, so here we go, investing all of this money in, in what he was calling just, you know, effectively two years ago, a dead end brand is interesting. I'll be curious to see if, if the Renault Group can pull it off. Mm, I just want to see that A290 on the road. I can see so much Clio V6 Sport in that car. I just I so badly want it to come here or to be made. If you would like to know more news or if you'd like to read more news, you can head to carexpert.com.au. Scully, you had the chance to drive the most expensive Kia ever on its recent launch, which was in Korea, which we talked about earlier, the EV9. Um, did you ever think that Kia could ever make such a car? 
Uh, look, if you'd asked me about five or six years ago, I would have said probably not. But in 2023, it seems like there's nothing the brand can't do. It's gone on a really aggressive push to to be bolder with its designs, to make its cars more luxurious and more engaging. And unlike some other brands doing that, it hasn't forgotten how to make an affordable car at the other end as well. So it does kind of seem like the world is at Kia and Hyundai's feet at the moment. And the EV9 is proof that they're not overstretching themselves. Okay, so um, we probably should ask you first, what exactly is the EV9? So the EV9 is a concept car come to life. It's probably the best way I can describe it. It's a big seven-seat family SUV that is similar to a Hyundai Palisade in size. Um, It's going to be offered in three different trim levels, starting with a rear-drive short range and extending to an all-wheel drive long range. Um, And it's also a hero car for Kia and for Korea at the moment. Hyundai will do a version of this with the 7 at some point, the Ionic 7. But for now, this is the the most expensive, the the coolest, and the most out there Korean car you can buy in Australia. Um, And that is also a part of its role to really change people's perceptions about the Kia brand, just like the EV6 and the Stinger did before it. So we hear all the time about designers talking about the opportunities that electric vehicle uh, that electric vehicles bring. That you can have a longer wheelbase, you can have shorter overhangs, you can have a more spacious cabin. This is one of the probably one of the largest, most practical electric vehicles that we've actually seen. Does it kind of live up to that hype? How is the interior packaged? Can you fit in the third row? Tell us about what's inside. Yeah, so the interior of these eGMP, which is the, the platform underneath these cars, is a real highlight. I mean, the EV6, the Ionic 5, they each have a very different take on it, but the common points are a flat floor, lots of space and air and things that make it feel more open than a normal cabin um, and some interesting tech, and the EV9 definitely delivers on that. In the front seats, it, it feels like you're driving a Range Rover. You sit nice and high. The bonnet is really wide and flat. It's a very... I think imperious is probably the best way to describe it, view of the road ahead. Um, but yeah, up front, it definitely feels like a very modern electric family car. It's also very practical. Um, the infotainment system is a step forward from what we get in Australia on Kia cars at the moment. There's lots of storage space because there's no transmission tunnel. And thank the Lord, Kia has put a touchscreen in for its climate controls, but you can change your fan speed, your fan direction, and your temperature using little toggles on the dashboard. So they've also blended the like slick concept car looks with some real practical touches up front, which is a great thing. The second row is massive, um, just down to the, the way we were filming cars and that sort of thing when we were over there. I ended up riding one of the legs in the back seat and there is enough leg room for me at six foot seven to sit behind another reasonably tall adult in the front seat without either of us really compromising. There's heaps of headroom and All of the amenities you'd expect are back there. There are air vents in the roof. You've got your own temperature controls. There's USB chargers, fold-down central armrest, pretty much everything. The bench also slides back and forward, as you would expect, Um, and the windows are really nice and tall and and boxy, so it's really comfortable back there. The third row is it's not quite Kia Carnival good. I was hoping for maybe a little bit more, but... Even if you remove the the spare wheel and the four-wheel drive locking diffs and that sort of thing that get in the way of seats folding into the floor in some cars, you've still got a 99 kilowatt hour battery in this thing. So there's still a lot of going on under the floor, which means the floor is quite high. And it means that if the second row is slid all the way back, there's not really anywhere for anyone over about five or six years old to put their feet in their legs. 
Sliding the second row forward does definitely improve that. I could sit back there with the second row slid all the way forward. Headroom is awesome. You get air vents and USB ports back there. I would say it definitely improves slightly on something like a Palisade, but it doesn't move the game forward significantly. Because I think the Palisade has probably got the most spacious third row in, in that in that part of the market. Um, so I, I wasn't expecting this to be quite carnival spacious in the third row, but if it can at least be Palisade good, then I think that's good for a family buyers. Because right now, if you want to buy a three-row EV in, in Australia, you've got the Mercedes EQB. and It's a very different beast to the EQB. It's significantly bigger. So um, especially with the death of the Model X in Australia, it really is your only option for now. So, um, Scully, how much does this weigh and do you think it has enough power to transport up to seven people? Uh, Yeah, weight is an interesting one. Um, Kia's being a bit weird about the specs of this car. In Australia, we know it's coming. We know there'll be three model grades based on what's been said previously, but they won't tell us what each of them gets. Um, That kind of extended to weights and stuff until we finally had a chance to sit down with a product manager who confirmed that the dual motor all-wheel drive weighs 2.7 tonnes. That is a lot. But the good news is all of the cars we drove were all-wheel drive dual motor models and all of them had the boost mode um, function, which is essentially just 700 newton meters instead of 600 newton meters activated. In Korea, you pay for that as a subscription uh, through the Kia Connect store. In Australia, we don't know quite how that's going to work just yet, but it's the most powerful version essentially. And it is quick. Um, Zero to 100 takes 5.3 seconds. Uh, which is pretty damn impressive for a 5.1 metre long, 2.7 tonne family car. And when you put your foot down, it definitely doesn't do that like neck snapping electric car thing like Tesla's where you lose your stomach halfway down the road, but it pushes you back in the seat and it keeps you pushed back there all the way past 100 kilometres an hour. So it's going to have absolutely no trouble with a family on board, feeling like it's got enough get up and go. Um, Does your family SUV need to be that fast? I, I would say not necessarily, but... The only options Kia's given us at the moment are a single motor rear drive, which does zero to 100 in just under 10 seconds, or a dual motor all-wheel drive with either 280 kilowatts and 600 newton meters or 700 newton meters. So you've got the fast one, you've got the slow one, and there's no in-between one for now. How much do you think this might be priced at? I don't think we have prices for it yet, do we? Yeah, at the moment we're expecting, and this is not confirmed, it's just based on what Kia has sort of told us and other media, about 90 grand to start potentially. Um, and then it could extend as far as 120 or $130,000, depending on what specs Kia brings to Australia and, and how that all goes. So final confirmation will come in the next couple of months, hopefully. Um, but currently the most expensive Kia in Australia is the EV6 GT, which is $100,000 before on-roads. This will definitely be more expensive than that. And that's no great surprise. Kia has told us previously it's their flagship. It's their most expensive car. Um, But yeah, at the bottom end, you're going to be going head to head with a Mazda CX-90, something like that. At the top end, you're in Volvo EX90, their electric SUV uh, territory, along with BMW X5, Mercedes GLE, Audi Q7, stuff like that. I was reading a really interesting um, interview with uh, Kia's global design boss, Kareem Habib, and he was saying... We're not going to try and say that we're a luxury or a premium brand or that we're introducing luxury or premium products. Those terms are massively overused. Um, we think that our vehicles are aspirational. Um, so it's interesting. This pricing is right up against luxury brand combustion powered vehicles. Um, but I think for what it is, being an electric vehicle and being that electric vehicles currently typically have a significant premium over a petrol car, then this pricing doesn't sound completely crazy to me. 
Yeah, look, I'm the same. It um, it definitely feels like Kia will not struggle to sell these cars. They're going to get about 100 a month, so it's not as if they're going to have millions to sell as well. But um, I actually was sitting at the football on the weekend talking to my mate about what I'd been up to and I'd been in Seoul and we were talking about the EV9 and that sort of thing. And the guy sitting in front of me about half an hour later turned around and goes, did you say you were driving a Kia EV9 in Korea? I said, oh, yeah, I, I, you know, I work for a car expert. Make sure you check out the website. Mandy's incredible. Will's incredible. Well, you know, all the stuff I say when <laughs> oh, you guys aren't around. Of course. Um, but he's got his money down on one already, having not heard any drive impressions. Oh. <laughs> and they've got two Tesla Model Ys at the moment. They want something bigger. So clearly what Kia is doing is working. And having driven it, pressed all the buttons, fiddled with all the materials, that sort of thing, I agree that it's not what I would call like a traditional premium car because – I think really high-end premium and I think Range Rover or something like that where every surface has had millions of layers of leather and lacquer and stitching and things lavished on it. And that's not what the Kia EV9 is. There's a very utilitarian kind of feel to parts of the interior, but not in a sort of basic or minimal way, more just it is a family car. It's designed to be spacious and They've not bothered trying to make it something it isn't by by chasing some old British ideal of luxury. It feels really confident and like it stands on its own. And I, I have a lot of respect for that. Um, I'd much prefer that than this being a Korean knockoff of an old British luxury car. Instead, it does absolutely feel worth $100,000, something like that. But it goes about it in its own way. And I think that's really to be respected. Are there any cool features that we're going to miss out on in Australia? Yeah, so in Korea, they get a level three highway driving assistant. Um, essentially, it's just similar to what we get at the moment in Australia. It's got lane centering, lane keep, uh, distance control on the highway, but it will also change lanes for you. You flick the indicator and it will check there's nothing in your blind spot, make sure the road markings are okay, and then move across. That's not coming to Australia, and it means the front end of our cars will look slightly different because we have different hardware in the bumpers, but very minor differences. Beyond that, uh, there's just connected features and that sort of thing that we won't get in Oz to start with. So Kia Connect, which is their um, app-based control system, will come. But in Korea, you can actually drive through all the toll booths and it will pay for the toll using an account linked to your car. So in Melbourne, we have eTag. I don't know what you guys have in Brisbane. I assume someone throws shillings out the window of a horse and cart up there. Um, But... In Korea, you drive under the toll booth in these Kias and the infotainment system flashes up saying, this is what the toll was, this is how much you've spent today, and this is how much is remaining in your account. It's all integrated into the system. And that's obviously something that is aimed at their home market that we won't get in Oz. Beyond that, I actually don't know uh, because Kia hasn't confirmed anything. But beyond some of the sort of finicky connected stuff, we tend to get a full gamut of features from Korean cars that maybe we don't from some other brands. So I would be very surprised if the Australian EV9 was shortchanged compared to the the Korean, excuse me, or European one. Scott, uh, 22 degrees and sunny. I could record the podcast outside today if I wanted to. Can you? <laughs> Shut up. Uh, no comment. No comment from, what is it? It's oh, warm today, 14 degrees in Melbourne. <laughs> it is actually well, warm. summer there. Um, <laughs> Scully, um, I don't know whether you mentioned this before, but how much range does it have and did you find it to be accurate? 
So claimed range is between sort of 450 and 550 kilometers, depending on which spec you go for. Um, the dual motor all-wheel drive sort of fastest performance model has just shy of 500 kilometers. Um, that, depending on how you drive, could prove accurate. So the best figure we saw was around 20 kilowatt hours per 100 kilometers. Um, based on that, you will get 100, uh, 500 kilometers from the car. That's a highway driving number because it's got a 99 kilowatt hour battery. Um, the the claim is 25 kilowatt hours per 100, which is a little bit less than that, but that's a mixed driving figure, obviously. So, yeah, look, we've found that Kia and Hyundai range claims tend to be fairly accurate. Whether that's a deliberate move by them, whether it's just how they test them, I'm not sure, but... The EV6 and the Ionic 5 were similar, and the Kona was similar before that even. Once you've spent a bit of time behind the wheel, the trip computers tend to be pretty good at guessing how far you'll be able to go. Um, I don't expect that to be any different with the EV9. I think the only real consideration is we haven't put a trailer on the back, for example, and Kia does say it'll tow two and a half tons. Um, wow. We haven't you know, set the cruise control on the Hume up and down hills with seven people on board, all the stuff that owners actually might do. So we don't know quite how much that will affect it, but one person on board, normal driving, I think it's reasonable to assume you'll get close to that claim range. All right, to check out the full review and which car expert rating Scully gave it, just head to the website to find out more. Over the last few weeks, we've been publishing content on Australia's most comprehensive four-wheel drive SUV, Megatus. So from drag racing, off-roading to towing, we did it all, but which one outshone the rest? If you've been all over our website and uh, YouTube channel, you probably know already, but um, we've got Scully here to run us through the results. Um, look, Scully, I- I've got to ask you this first. You've been a motoring journal for a number of years now. Have you ever undertaken such a gigantic mega test before like this? Um, I mean, Mandy, in a, in a past life, we've worked together on some pretty big projects. Before we were at Car Expert, we were at um, Car Advice and we did some big shoots and that sort of thing there. But I actually can't remember having this many cars, people, things all going on, except for the last Ute mega test we did, which was essentially the same thing. Um, yeah, 12 people, 12 cars, except for when there was 13 cars, which is besides the point, um, and five days. It really was a significant undertaking, but it was one that I know I really enjoyed. Will, uh, I don't want to speak for you, but I'm assuming you enjoyed as well. It seemed like you were having fun. Um, and one that has given us some really cool videos and obviously the written content we're going to talk about now. Yeah, cool. Um, so exactly how did you calculate the winner? <laughs> Uh, we have a very sophisticated supercomputer hidden in the Melbourne office. Uh, no, so we went through and the the tests we put these cars through were performance testing. So we did the drag race and then we also ran the numbers on the high-speed bowl. We did a towing test with a dynamometer trailer on the back that essentially can act like an anchor and pull the car back. And then we also used a 2.8-ton box trailer. Um, and then we also did a full off-road test through... I wouldn't call it crazy off-road conditions, but conditions tough enough that some cars failed and it really showed up how well all of their electronic systems worked. And the winner was the car that performed best across the board. So rather than the judges' scores or any ambiguous criteria, it essentially was what did everything the best? Hmm. And the answer to that was the Land Rover Defender, which was a real standout on test. And I know it exceeded my expectations. Did, did we actually have like a top three or was it just the Defender and that's it? Were there any other standout ones aside from that? 
So the Defender won the overall testing. We also have some category winners. We found the best performance SUV was the Lexus LX600, and that's based on the drag race and then the performance tests we did on the high-speed bowl at the old Holden Proving Ground in Lang Lang. Um, the best four-cylinder performance SUV was the Ford Everest by Turbo. The best towing SUV was the Land Rover Defender 110, which I know we've talked about on the podcast before, and the best four-cylinder towing four-wheel drive SUV was the Ford Everest by Turbo. Uh, and then off-roading, our winner was the Nissan Patrol, and the best four-cylinder was the Mitsubishi Pajero Sport. So we have those individual category winners, but overall, regardless of price, which wasn't really the point of this test, it was more about seeing which was the most capable, the Defender came out on top uh, because it just was such a competent all-rounder. Well, yeah. Those results also seem to indicate to me that if, if your budget can't extend to a Defender 110, then a Ford Everest by Turbo sounds like it'd be a good choice because if it's a quite a capable uh, towing vehicle and if it's got good performance. Uh, yeah, look, the Everest by Turbo, it, it definitely is a solid all-rounder. And I, I think what we've found with the Everest and the Ranger previously is the V6 is really nice to have. I, I know that maybe I'm a snob, maybe I just like having a bit more power, but if I had the money, I would definitely buy the V6. But mm. you're not getting short change with the by Turbo. And what we found in our towing test was that – it was the most sort of confident, I suppose, four-cylinder of the cars on test. It had a bit more punch than the Pajero Sport, than the Rexton. It, uh, its suspension tune was more sorted than some of its rivals. It just, It's still very capable. It just doesn't have quite as much extra in reserve as the V6, which obviously is the point of an entry-level car. It doesn't do everything as well as the expensive one. But all of the big boxes you need ticked, it does tick. I think the other thing about the Everest is away from this testing, which obviously focused on the pure capabilities of the cars and not so much the tech, the interior, that sort of thing. If you had to live with one every day, uh, the yeah. Everest is a fantastic car. It's got awesome interior tech. It's very clever inside. It's very spacious. Um, it's quite nice to drive on the road. The, the Everest by Turbo we used on test was actually a, a long-termer that our production team uses, and they drive it to and from Lang Lang a couple of times a week. They load it up with camera kit. They commute in it. And every day they drive it, they like it more because it does so much so well. So, yeah, the Everest, I mean, poor man's is really being mean to it, but <laughs> it sort of is the the budget or more budget alternative that will do pretty much everything all the others will, just maybe not quite as comfortably or as luxuriously as some of the more expensive cars. I think another thing that these results show is that there's – even some of the older vehicles that perhaps I might have expected might not have performed that well relative to the competition ended up doing really well. If you look at the winners of our off-roading, um, Patrol and Pajero Sport are two of the oldest vehicles in their respective segments, um, and they both uh, came up really well. Even the Toyota Fortuna, which is often overlooked, I, I recall it did pretty well in towing. Um, so I think every vehicle on test has got some strength to it, regardless of age. Yeah, I think definitely the, the big showing for me was, um, was yeah, all these cars will do it. But I think also, although they all had strengths and they all did things well, um, I realize that's the most basic language imaginable if we're talking about something as complex as towing or off-roading or that sort of thing. It is also worth bearing in mind that we tested these cars well within the bounds of what the manufacturers say they can do. And some of them really did struggle. Um the towing in particular, a lot of these cars, save for the Prado, the Pajero Sport, the Jeep, have a claimed three and a half ton towing capacity. But 
We found that in some cases, like the Rexton, it had a really solid suspension set up, but with 2.8 tons on the back, it didn't have the performance to comfortably tow. And in other cases, like the Jeep, even though we were pushing right up against the limit of what it could do, its suspension tune just was not well enough sorted, nor was its engine torquey or effortless enough to comfortably tow that much. So on the one hand, each of these cars kind of put in a good showing in one area at some point on the test. On the other, I don't think I'd be hitching up a really heavy load to an MUX without looking into an aftermarket suspension option on the back of what we found on our test. I don't think if I wanted to tow a trailer, I'd be looking at a Jeep Grand Cherokee L, which maybe won't be a surprise to some people, but that is a thing that Jeep Grand Cherokees traditionally have been good at doing. So I think the flip side to that wheel is, yeah, we didn't do anything all of that out of the ordinary with these cars. It's not unusual to see an Everest towing a massive boat or trailer, but even within the bounds of what the brands say they can do, you really do need to be careful with how far you push them. It really then underscores just how impressive the Defender was, doesn't it? Uh, Because it was able to perform so well across all of these, you know, varied tests. And I think perhaps when that Defender was first revealed, people thought, oh, this is going to be a little bit more of a kind of a poser mobile. It's going to be a little bit more of like a soccer mom SUV and and not offer the level of capability that the old Defender had. But... This it obviously is a lot more complex. It's a very different beast from the old Defender. But look at this. It did so well in towing. It did so well off-road. And it's comfortable. And it's premium inside. It's I can understand why I won. Yeah, the Defender for me was a real surprise package. Um, and not because it excelled at everything. It didn't blow the competition away. But in the drag race, it's got an inline six diesel and we didn't expect it to be all that quick, but it actually gave the LX600 a real run for its money. We also then wheeled out the V8 Defender for a bit of fun and that smoked the crowd, but that's a a bit of a different thing. Um, In the towing test, it was absolutely the best. Um, With its air suspension, as soon as you hooked a trailer up, it set a really level platform and controlled the car and the trailer's weight beautifully. That Ingenium Diesel 6 is so talky and effortless that when you put your foot down, it just pulls smoothly. And then in the off-roading, it actually, it wasn't the winner because we found a few little quirks with how the traction control was working going up our hill, for example. Um, If you didn't have the car in the right setting, the extra height from the air suspension could make it bounce around and lose traction. It wasn't perfect, but of all of these cars, if I needed to take my family to a campsite, for example, and hitch up a trailer and tow that to the caravan park and then take them exploring off-road and then drive them home afterwards and, I don't know, maybe smoke some Ford Everest from the traffic lights. (laughs) It's absolutely the one that I would want because it, it does everything really well. It's incredibly comfortable inside. It's nice to drive on the road. And I did a lot of driving in that Defender during the week because we're planning to write a review on it. And every day I looked forward to driving it. And that's not the point of this test. I'm sort of off book here slightly. But one of the other things that I think it does really well is if you look at that field, there's a few icons there. The Land Cruiser is an icon. The Patrol is an icon. The Grand Cherokee is an icon in its own right. None of them has been reinvented as confidently and as sort of as boldly, I suppose, as the Defender has. Land Rover did have plenty of time to think about it, I realize. It took its time getting it there. (laughs) But uh, yeah, beyond all of our testing, one of the other things I love about the Defender is that it just makes you smile when you drive it. And that really counts for something too, just not in the testing more if you're a normal punter. <laughs> totally get it. So uh, Defender 110, the top prize goes to that. Uh, now, Scully, do we have any plans for another mega test in the works? God, I hope not, Mandy. I'm still tired. <laughs> 
Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, there is definitely plans for more mega tests in the works. I don't want to speak out of school though, because putting these things together is a pretty massive undertaking. Um, between James booking 12 cars, each of them having a trailer brake and trailer brake controller and tow bar and having them all in the right place at the right time, to the video team hustling what I believe was a couple of terabytes worth of footage, um, to the people from Brisbane, including Will and Megan, our social um, sort of coordinator, and John, who is a friend of the business, coming down to help out and spending a week in Melbourne. To And Ryan. And Ryan, our photographer, thank you, um, to uh, the Crawford from Sydney, to uh, the uh, winner of our competition last year who did such a good job on our Ute mega test, James Gelding, that we brought him back for this one. Mm. It really is a big week that is months in the making. So, yes, there are plans, but I don't want to say what it's going to be because if for whatever reason it falls over and we have to shuffle it, um, it's not going to be anyone's fault, but I'm going to look really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but at least we know something is coming, which is great. Um, oh, there's, there's always something coming. If anyone does have any feedback on the mega test, what they saw and liked, what they didn't like, and I know there was some feedback on the back of the Ute mega test that the criteria wasn't clear enough. That's something that we really tried to clean up in this one and to make more obvious was what the tests were and why each car won. If there's any feedback, please feel free to leave it in the comments. Reach out to us at podcast at carexpert.com.au. Um, we want to know what you think because this content takes a lot of time and effort from us. Um, but the reason we do it is for people reading it to get something from it or watching it to get something from it. So if there's something we can do better, please do reach out and let us know. We'll say politely, preferably politely. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, you can head to the website under uh, car reviews and car comparisons at carexpert.com today to read more. That wraps up another Car Expert podcast. Where's the team off to next week, Scully? It's a bit of a quieter week, Mandy, after what's been a pretty hectic month. Uh, I'm off to... New South Wales tomorrow on a 6am flight to drive the Hyundai Kona. Very excited to see that, especially the tennis ball yellow car that's the hero picture mm -hmm. on our price and spec story. Uh, and then next week, we've got Matt Campbell driving the MG4 while we're talking affordable electric cars, Tony Crawford driving the Cupra Leon V and Albor's up in, down from Brisbane, excuse me, to drive the new Merc GLC. Excellent. And have we got a few cars in the garage, Will? Yeah, we have a lot. Um, so um, they're all in Melbourne. Uh, so we've got another Alfa Romeo Tonale, this time in top spec Veloce trim. Uh, we've got a Toyota Land Cruiser 70 Series, uh, <laughs> a couple of Mazda CX-8s. Are we almost done with the CX-8s? We've had so many. <laughs> um, we've also got a Mitsubishi Outlander Aspire and we've got a Volkswagen Golf Life Wagon. Uh, so hmm. it'll be an interesting one. Awesome. A very interesting mix there indeed. Okay, that wraps up this week's podcast. If you do have anything to uh, tell us or any questions at all, podcast at carexpert.com.au. William Stopford and Scott Colley, thank you. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Mandy. <laughs>